Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I am joined, as always, by TLS commissioning editor, culture guru and pronunciation specialist, Thea Lenadutsi. Each week we will be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS plus arts and cultural events. Coming up on the show this week, Peter Parker has a new book about A.E. Hausman. Called Hausman Country, it is in many ways an investigation into an old-fashioned view of Englishness. Former Poet Laureate Andrew Motion reviews it in this week's TLS, not entirely positively. He will join us and end the show by reading a poem from A Shropshire Lad by A.E. Hausman. Englishness is a bit of a preoccupation this week. The cover piece in the paper takes us back to that national myth-making moment of 50 years ago, 1966, when England hosted and won the Football World Cup. Writer DJ Taylor will tell us just what people were reading in that pivotal cultural year. The TLS also commemorates another anniversary this week. It's the bicentenary of Charlotte Bronte's birth. She has come certainly to stand for a type of Englishness, the wild moors and weather-beaten characters of Yorkshire, stolidity and stoicism, frustration and emotional entanglement. Don't worry, Thea is from the north to help us work this out. Although you don't really sound northern, Thea, do you? <laughs> Only on certain words. Only on certain words. When we, I can say them. <laughs> we say we both flatten our vowels, bath, path and all of that. But anyway, we have representatives from the north to help us and also joining us will be Trev Broughton, the senior lecturer in English at York University, who's reviewed yet another biography of Charlotte Bronte for the TLS this week. We shall begin then with Hausman, the great poet of the nation, who Peter Parker calls in his book a gazetteer of the English heart. Parker's book, Hausman Country, is a loving, exhaustive reader's guide to Hausman's poetry, citing it firmly, a little too firmly perhaps, in an ideal of Englishness. Hausman, the poet favoured by soldiers in both world wars. Hausman, the voice of a Shropshire Arcadia. Andrew Motion's review takes some issue with this approach, even when he recognises the affable thoroughness of the work Parker has done. And I'm delighted to say Andrew joins Thea and me now. Andrew, do you think this is a, a missed opportunity to do something more original with Hausman rather than simply locating his literary and geographical centre, as it were? Well, I think it locates all that a quite large area of that centre pretty well. But yes, basically, I do think that it's a bit of a missed opportunity. And I think that the missing of it is really to do with something that you raised in your nice introduction there, which is to say that it simply takes for granted a coherent idea of Englishness 
that probably it does exist in a lot of people's minds, but by no means in everybody's minds. And perhaps Peter Parker wasn't to, to know this, but post-Brexit, it looks even more unreliable as a, a, a kind of catch-all concept. So I think that to interrogate that idea more closely and to, see, to look at the poems and see how they do or do not connect with that old idea, that received idea of Englishness, perhaps it's something that would have added to a stronger dimension to the book. Is he always a poet of nostalgia, do you think, Hausman, in that sense, that people read it because they yes. kind of are longing for something that may never have existed, but if it did exist, it, it probably existed before our time? Yes, I think that's both the deep charm and the possible limitation of the poems, that they do at once indulge that and recognise it. But as I say, I think as history rolls on, there's the, the particular prompts for the, the affection in which the poems have been held arguably diminish. And there's an idea of England as a coherent thing, let alone the, U, the UK as a coherent thing, unravels a bit. Then the poems come under pressures, which Parker doesn't talk enough about, by which I really mean that he doesn't investigate the ways in which these poems want to admit to something that doesn't that isn't really there and find consolation in that as well as perhaps some, some disappointments. It's interesting you say that because you, you write beautifully in the piece about this sort of double time scheme of Hausmann, mm. how he's kind of in the moment and also under the eye of eternity. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're saying, that he almost at the time recognises um, the, the own limits of, of the world he's writing about and he, he's, 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 kind of, he's kind of looking askance at that even though he's working within them? That's right. I think that's true. And that is the way of sort of letting him off the charge of being too comfortably nostalgic or whatever the word would be. Nostalgic would probably do, actually. But my question about the poems remains, I think, and actually, as I get older, gets more agitated, which is perhaps that way of excusing himself itself becomes a bit formulaic. It's not just, in other words, that so many poems end with the idea that and will not come again, or you know, the land of lost content. This is a sort of series of feelings that, or that a series of appreciations that we can't ever quite recover. My question really is: Does the excuse mechanism in the prose become itself become too axiomatic? Does he let himself off the the charge of being nostalgic too easily? I think as readers, there's always that tendency as well as you as you said before to to let him off that hook, and so we we have. Um, discussion of him in terms of surface and depth and and so you can yes. you could map that onto it and say that it's all about this mask that he puts forward the mask being um to do with uh, stoicism sure. and things like that when re really what's going on there's also this this kind of fizzing beneath that mask so you've got uh, it kind of ties into your double time scheme i think you have this very male stoic yes. distance an almost unwavering face when faced with all of the, the calamities, at the same time as you have a very human involved and impulsive emotional response to details in the poems. Sure, but yeah, that, no, I'm sure that well, is a tendency to try to let him off the hook. Yes, I think so. I mean, he's wise to that, of course, and tries to operate that mechanism himself. And a lot of his most enthusiastic admirers do that too. But I find myself, I mean, not to a disastrous extent, but but nevertheless, more and more thinking, actually, perhaps this box shuts a bit too tightly. Perhaps the consolations are a bit too comfortable. Perhaps the, the excuses that he gives himself operate too smoothly. Perhaps we know the outcome mm. too easily of his trains of thought. There's a sense and that's bound to... 
Sorry. To do something a little bit disappointing in the end. Yeah, I think there's a whole there's a whole kind of tongue in cheek element to it as well, which is wh- why perhaps yeah. he sort of, you know, Morrissey is such a, a famous fan of his. And I think um, there's <laughs> yeah. an interesting point that um, yeah, right. I didn't know that. Hausman. Oh yeah, I mean he's, he's Morrissey. Morrissey is Hausman through and through. But I mean there's there's something that Hausman yeah. said where he he was accused of pessimism and he said, um, well, you know, actually uh, I I would call it um, I, I would say I'm a pejorist as in from from the yeah. Latin word for worse and that you know Morrissey himself could have said that it's it's sort of the idea that he believed that things could get worse or that the worse yes. wor- worse things would come but not the worst i wonder if if he had been an unrelenting pessimist pessimist whether whether his um, appeal would have been so enduring well i think that's probably true but i also think you have to fold into that an idea that this unrelenting pessimism actually has quite a sort of smooth way of traveling if you put your, him in your mind next to hardy for instance another pessimist or larkin a more recent pessimist i mean the word hardly covers it in both their cases it immediately exposes the difference doesn't it between those mm-hmm. two and and Hassan himself because you always almost always feel taken by surprise by hardy and larkin's engagement with with misery or the downside of things as though it's they feel it afresh each time they encounter it. With Hausman, there is a sense of a default setting, I think. Yeah, I think Ezra Pound um, captured it quite well in his um, Mr Hausman's message when he said um, it, yeah. he had that constant refrain, didn't he? Oh, whoa, whoa, etc. Exactly. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> <fussing>. <laughs> exactly. 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 <laughs> and a kind of weird coziness comes in with that. I mean, having said all this, I don't want to sound too down on him because I think he is still an extraordinarily memorable, skillful, touching poet and in half a dozen poems at least writes so beautifully about a landscape which is at once realized and evident self-evidently imaginary that he's never going to disappear off, off my map entirely i'm taken andrew because you mentioned this and and maybe this is a willingness of people to to make him more complex than he otherwise would seem but this idea of him mm. writing about manliness and, and maleness and of course when you, you yes. read his biography you, you know that he had this frustrated deep-seated love for a guy called Moses right. Jackson which was never returned and then he's, he's kind of been appropriated by a certain type of critic as, as having being about maleness and manliness do you think that that adds yeah. to the complexity of him yes definitely and I think and I'm, I welcome it in the poems very strongly I must say I think it adds a whole fascinating new dimension to it I mean, in all kinds of ways, so that certain words, and I tried to say this a little bit in my piece, that could appear perfectly neutral in a different sort of context, words like standing, possibly become sort of loaded and charged in his poems in a a very particular way. The engagement with various forms of quite specifically male activity, whether it's, well, games, for instance, keep coming up. I I know women take games as well, but the way in which games appear in Hausmann seem a kind of little set of totemic virility activities, if you like. So I think everywhere there is a very interesting engagement with the idea of, of maleness, which is very characteristically held in balance with an idea of it being stopped or prevented or thwarted or stalled in, in some way. And you reference, and it occurred to me reading your piece even before you got to it, actually, this notion, mm. it reminds me of In Memoriam uh, and that sort of emotional oh, yeah, heft of, of trying to touch yeah. someone who's not there, of someone, uh, and, and, you know, yes. the notion of hands, which is very important in, in, in Memoriam, I think, and also Tremendously. in, in, in housing. Yeah. You're trying to touch someone who is inaccessible to you through death in the form of uh, In In Memoriam. Absolutely. And then, and then for, for Hausman, someone he could never actually hold in his arms. That Indeed. has an emotional That's resonance, exact- doesn't it? of profound emotional resonance and and one of the ways in which it it works and and achieves that profundity is of of course by having a very obvious correlation between that kind of 
would be loving physical engagement, a correlation between that and the, and the, the way the geography works in the poem, because the, the landscape is simultaneously there and not there. It's both real, detailed, and also imaginary, nebulous, uncatchable. So you could say that the whole activity of his engagement with the geography of Shropshire is a kind of enactment of what's going on elsewhere in quite particular male terms. And another way, that's an, an, another way of you, you saying this is not chocolate box territory we're in here. This is not here is no, a sort of rosy-cheeked I mean, ideal. I think, exactly. You could read it in this chocolate boxy way. You could go and buy the hand the washing up towel, which has got husband poems on it. But actually, if you want to engage with them properly, you really need to think about all this other stuff as well. And it makes the poems more angular, more awkward and more interestingly sad. Um, Angie, it's been wonderful talking. And, and like I said, it's such a lovely piece. The whole uh, issue, well, because we have a piece about the 1966 and ideas of Englishness. We've got a piece later on about oh, xenoph- xenophobia, uh, the new xenophobia, which you, which you kind of touch. So we're hugely grateful well, for you doing it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, both of you. You can just read the poems as a nostalgic rendition of an idealised form of England which is presumably why they're popular in wartime mm. when you're fighting in Ypres or you're you're fighting through Italy in the Second World War and you see this devastated landscape around you and bombs going off and death and you want a confirmation of your part in a community yeah, of, and of Englishness, men and, and maleness and Englishmen and, and you know the, the ideal of what kind of what you're fighting for without it being obviously what you're mm. fighting for you know reminding of the rolling fields of home mm. but it's, it's clearly more complicated than well that. yeah I mean I think when we were talking, when you were talking about the connection with Immorium, I think that also makes me think of the kind of the interplay between the physical and the emotional in yeah. Hausman. I mean, I'm really drawn to the physicality of it, how he talks about it, because the writing of poetry seems so connected to his person and his emotional state. So he'd always, he said how he'd like to, you know, have a pint and then go for a, a walk. And it was those conditions that allowed the words to kind of bubble up. Uh, you know, those are his words, bubble up with uh, from within. And so it kind of ties in with the idea of his poems being symptoms. He described them as morbid secretions. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's like poetry was a way for him, like for, as it was for Tennyson, to work things out. So yeah. for Tennyson, it was to, to work out his grief, and, and for Hausman, it was to work out and play with what it feels like to suffer un- unrequited love or unfaithfulness, the number of lives lost in, in war, the loss of a comrade, what it feels like to live in exile... It is poetry as consolation, and obviously that's part of what Andrew was saying. But it's not easy. Con- but it's not easy consolation, I suppose. Is the yeah. point? It's not as poetry as simple as this: something pretty to make you mm. feel better. It's recognizing that actually there's a lot more ugliness and complexity around. Mm. How interesting. Right, let us take ourselves off to another part of the English countryside, Howarth, the home of Charlotte Bronte, born 200 years ago, uh, who, of course, among other things, wrote under the name Carabelle one of the great English novels, Jane Eyre. Trev Broughton has reviewed what sounds like a brilliant, dynamic new biography of Bronte. She describes it as a terrific story, brimming with indomitable personalities, trials and ordeals, passions and disappointments. It has all the elements of a traditional romance. Trev joins Thea and me now. Hi, Trev. Hi. That's it, it. It does sound like a really good biography, and as you say, in, in uh, there's a legitimate question whether we need a new biography of Bronte. But perhaps you could give us the highlights of that terrific story you were talking about. What 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 parts of it really really sort of took you along? Well, I was really struck by the background of Patrick Bronte, the father. I suppose I knew that he came from humble origins, but it really comes across that he's one of ten children of a sort of practically illiterate uh, labourer in Ireland. 
and they have the same bookshelf as anyone in uh, Jonathan Rose's wonderful Intellectual Lives of the Working Classes. Uh, you know, two two testaments, a volume of Burns and the Pilgrim's Progress, and that's it. And he has to kind of uh, work himself up through various menial jobs, scraping together an education and eventually getting to Cambridge at the age of 25. So he really has to invent himself as a middle-class professional. And I think what Harmon's biography really draws attention to is the kind of fragility of the middle-class respectability that they're all trying to live up to. I find, like you, in your review as well, the... The, the, this dad, this Reverend Bronte, comes out very strongly. In the end, though, he's a bit of a paradoxical figure, isn't he? Because he, on one hand, he's an admirable figure of self-advancement, but he also seems to be something of a sort of infuriating autocrat. Was he, in the end, a force for good in the world and a force for good for Charlotte generally, do you think? That's a very good question. I mean, she clearly felt incredibly dutiful towards him right to the end of her life. Uh, she says she, she married a curate partly in order to continue to be able to look after him. He was difficult. I think that really comes across in the biography. He was very, very clear that his children should get as much education as he could afford for them. He was keen that Branwell in particular should get every opportunity, whether he wanted to be an artist or a writer. But he was also, in many ways, antisocial. He would have all his meals on his own. He was rather standoffish, I think, in the local community, although he was involved in local politics. I think he's an ambiguous figure, actually. They loved him, but that doesn't necessarily make him easy to live with. And how um, how successful... So, I mean, Harmon has sort of rendered this man with, in all of his ambiguity. How successfully does she give the same treatment to someone like Charlotte Bronte, who has been so sanctified and, and sanitised by, you know, ever since Elizabeth Gaskell's biography, really? You know, she was always the victim of her father's iron rule and she was incapable of coarseness and, you know, certainly incapable of fall, falling for a married man. But now we're allowed to know that that other side existed how how more compelling and conflicted a heroine do we do we meet in Harmon's book yes that's interesting she's clearly inherited some of her father's awkwardness i think they all shared an odd kind of uh, passive aggressive quality fiercely dutiful but also finding ways of getting their own way there are accounts of her as a governess for instance and uh, witnesses uh, and it's been disputed that witnesses said that uh, if the family invited her to church with them, she would feel that it was a kind of uh, tyrannical uh, incursion on her freedom. And if they didn't invite her to church, she would feel neglected. Uh, so I, I don't think she was necessarily an easy person. <laughs> uh, and we, we get quite a lot in harmony. She's very good at, at, at kind of picking up on those, those tones of voice where... Charlotte is asserting herself while while still coming across as perfectly polite. Mm, one, one of the theories that's often put forward in relation to Charlotte, Emily and Anne is that, is that they lived in this culture that fetishised 
uh, a woman's quietness. And um, as you point out, they were in, in the household, they were expected to absorb unquestioningly their father's authority. And so it, it often follows people say that their fictions were a space for them to, you know, really erupt onto the page and, mm-hmm. and, and act out the things that they had to uh, repress in real life. So you think immediately of that bit in Jane Eyre when the 10 year old Jane, you know, just goes unjust, unjust um, when faced with the, the, her cruel relatives. Yeah. I think there is an element of truth in that. I think what what that kind of uh, reflexive account misses out is the extent to which Bronte worked on these tropes and worked on these scenes of repression. They didn't just kind of pour out of her. There were sometimes 10 years of working over these scenes of injustice and repression before they came out in these beautifully crafted scenes of violent objection or mm. abject confession. And also and also that family life wasn't just quite frankly was not all about repression and they weren't so culturally isolated. In fact, the whole family would sit around and invent stories together in a kind of a creative writing workshop. Well, they can't have been. I mean, what, what one point is that, you know, one has to ask the question, how did one family produce three yeah. daughters who all could produce great works of literature? And it can't be that they were so cosseted away from the world or stopped from imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with bowl and branches organic cotton sheets in a recent customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15 percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now save 50 percent on the sleep number limited edition smart bed for a limited time for jd power 2023 award information visit jdpower.com awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Expressing themselves because they've left the world all of these outpourings of expression. Yes, I mean, the, the sagas that they wrote as children in these absolutely tiny little books, the Gondal sagas and the Angrian sagas, are millions of words long, and they carried on writing them from quite a young age, really well into adulthood, and it was a training in writing. So it's not as if these stories came out of nowhere. And I think Juliet Barker, who's a previous biographer of the Brontes, has really drawn attention to the fact that Howarth Parsonage was in the centre of really quite a bustling 
industrial town and it had mechanics institutes and there were concerts in Keesley and there were libraries and there were lectures and it's not as if they were kind of isolated it was a provincial life but it wasn't a rural life it wasn't necessarily an isolated life they were really at the hub of politics of uh, local church affairs you know, a lot was going on around them. You, you you can't look out of the window of the parsonage and not realise that life is passing within feet of the door. It's an interesting question also that, that occurs reading your review and, and considering Charlotte Bronte's life is she produced Jane Eyre and then she produces Shirley, which is a sort of a third-person novel against Jane Eyre's sort of beautiful outpourings, if you're saying, the sort of first-person narrative, which I suspect was quite startling at the time. Why did, why did Jane Eyre happen and then there was Shirley, which, was, which now, and I presume then, was less well-regarded, and she never attained the heights of Jane Eyre again? Does that, is that ever answered in, in this book or more generally? Well, that's a good question. A lot of us find Villette, which is the last finished novel... Uh, as good if not better than Jane Eyre. Really? It's an absolutely wonderful study of isolation, claustrophobia, uh, resistance. It's set in Brussels, and it's about Lucy Snow's time in Brussels and about the traumas she goes through, particularly when the rest of the school leaves for the long vacation. It's an incredibly profound psychological study. There's a wonderful bit where... Um, one of the heroes, uh, Dr. Graham, tells the heroine to uh, cultivate happiness. And Lucy Snow replies, happiness is not a potato. <laughs> you know, you can't just put was, it in the ground. I was really hoping that you'd bring up potatoes. Uh, <laughs> psychological novel. And you I think it's often overlooked. It's worth pointing out, God, that you're going to talk about yeah, no, potatoes do feature in your novel, in your review. Yeah, that's 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 why I don't want I didn't want people to just think that I was really hoping you would say potatoes. But you do make a you do go into some interesting debate about the significance or possibly identity of uh, some potatoes in the in the Bronte parsonage. Um, I really think someone home. should write a scholarly article about potatoes in the Bronte. Well, I mean that that particular <laughs> bit of your There's of a your review moment in the biography which I'd, I'd 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 forgotten about, which is I think in 1837 where Patrick and Branwell Bronte get involved in local politics and the, the local mob uh, create an effigy of Branwell Bronte to carry round the town. And you know it's Branwell Bronte because the figure has a herring in one hand and a potato in the other. <laughs> potatoes, of course, meaning Irish. So, I, you know, potatoes uh, have this... Uh, you know, in the early 19th century, have these uh, coded references to Irishness, which is never far away from the Bronte story. Mm, so food yes, food studies and the Brontes, you'd be ticking two, um, two trend boxes there in one go, I think. <laughs> Guaranteed bestseller. <laughs> I, I think we'll have to leave it there, uh, Trevor. Thank you. So it's, it's a lovely piece. And actually, as you say, the, the, the metaphor often associated with Charlotte Bronte is someone becoming grow, a plant growing out of a gloom, gloomy darkness. And, and I think what your review, I think, challenges, and the book seems to as well, this notion that it was as gloomy as all that for her. She was a, pro a prominent figure in a proper ordered society and the book didn't just the books that she created didn't just splurge from her she's part of that's part of her cultural life that she's she's living yes absolutely it was a difficult life but not necessarily an isolated one trev Bronson, thank you very much indeed thanks trev okay cheers they're so surrounded by cliche now the brontes mm. it's almost impossible to, to think of them without thinking of mm. the accretion of cliche mm. around them that maybe you maybe forget to read them as they were meant to be. I, I've not read Villa, have you? No, I haven't. But it's interesting that that's, that's in Trev's view, a, um, 
They're the most successful yeah. one of her novels. Yeah, but I mean, these cliches always sort of just, I mean, so much of it comes down to marketing, doesn't it? I mean, and there's there's a lot to be said, you know, the the seclusion and the, and the, the sweeping landscapes. I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, obviously, we're celebrating another bicentenary this year of another fantastic work born out of seclusion and bad weather being, you know, Frankenstein. Yeah. So, but yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. It's all a, a rich compost. <laughs> Will you, you get, stop talking about? The, I, I just want to read the end of the review because Thea is obsessed with matters botanical. Charlotte Mayer felt mis placed, unrecognised and culturally undernourished. But as Claire Harmon's book vividly shows, she also lived among frank and pithy men and women who cared about her, were interested in her and were not afraid to call a spud a spud. Right, well, let us move on uh, from one anniversary to another. We're going to jump forward a century and a half to 1966. This was a year of mythological significance, according to DJ Taylor, who has answered this question for the TLS. What were people reading in the year that England won the World Cup? The answer takes him to a broader consideration of that mythological era itself, the swinging 60s. Was it a time of free-loving, drug-infused experimental revolution, or were most people not living on the King's Road in Chelsea just curling up with the latest P.G. Woodhouse? My dad, who was 16 at the time, told me he was reading Ian Fleming that year in furtive secrecy because it wasn't considered a respectable author to look at. In any event, David joins Thea and me now, and I should say that Thea had the idea and commissioned this piece, and very, very well it has turned out too. Uh, David, how are you doing? I'm all right, thanks very much. Let's start with a myth before we get to the reality. We seem culturally to want the 60s, and 1966 in particular, to have cosmic significance. Why do you think that is? Well, if you're my age, I'm in my mid-50s now, it's almost inevitably... Oh, you look very well on it. Sorry? (laughs) You look very well on it. You're very kind. It's, It's all tied up with that World Cup victory on the 30th of July, 1966. Now, I watched that with my father... I was five. My father was then in his mid-40s, and he'd fought in the Second World War. And that was the Third World War taking place on a football pitch. And I've never seen him so exultant in his life as when we beat the horrid Germans. <laughs> and so it imprinted one of my first really conscious memories is of Weber in the 90th minute sliding in the, sliding in the equaliser to make it 2-2. And I flung myself down on the parquet floor and, and wept such was my misery. And then, of course, we won 4-2. But, you know, that, that to me was the big event of the 1960s, winning that World Cup. Was it, therefore, th- does that give something to the year in itself? Was it a pivotal year culturally? Because that's really the question your piece answers. What, what... It is. And there, you, you can look at various aspects of na- our national culture in that year and make, uh, you know, some very pointed observations, as, for example, John Savage has done in his book about pop culture, where he... Uh, he defines 1966 as that kind of halfway house when Maud is blending into psychedelia and uh, in another few months' time, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band will be coming up. And so the great beat explosion of the early 60s is mutating into something else, into something much more sort of weird and arty. And then the culture is changing almost from moment to moment. But yet, and, and you mentioned the Second World War in terms of your dad, mm. the Second World War, reading your piece, seems to still very much loom large in the literary imagination and therefore one imagines the cultural imagination generally. Oh, you can't get over it. I mean, just as, as um, you know, I was born oh, 15, over 15 years after the Second World War ended, and yet 
you know, the attic, our upstairs attic had a chest in it which was full of Nazi flags that my father had pilfered from um, town halls in southern Germany, you know, in 1945. And, uh, and he did dug the garden wearing his old RAF greatcoat. Uh, in much the same way, the, um, you know, your, your, the, av- or the vast, the, the sort of mature English novelist of the mid-1960s was a man in his 50s or 60s who very probably fought in the Second World War. If he hadn't done that, had certainly done national service. You know, he had service experience behind him. And so the novels of, um, of Anthony Pohl, for example, or even Simon Raven, are very much concentrated on the idea of military service. And um, the, the, this constant sort of looking back, uh, you know, we forget quite how much I think the, the, the British, as well as sort of looking forward into a bright and putatively experimental future, the, the British novel in the 1960s was also looking firmly back at the world uh, in which its, its writers, its practitioners had grown up in. You, you mentioned the shadow of the Nazis in connection to, to John Fowles. And I mean, it's interesting in connection to, to John Fowles. In fact, you tell us that he was worrying in his diaries at the time that the, the novel was a condemned form and the English reader was dead. But mm. at the same time, one of his own novels rose to the top of the literary charts. What, what is it? Do you think about Fowles the Magus that captured the attention of, of readers in 1966 so well? I'd have to be perfectly brutal and say that it's full of what I would now call fashionable tab. <laughs> no, seriously, the Freud or the obsession the with young, young the young. animus, the all this, and also, of course, all, 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 all the sex as well. The interesting thing about, two interesting things about that book, it was made into a film, completely butchered into a film starring Michael Caine, you know, doing his sort of Alfie role mm. only on a, on a Greek island with philosophy. Uh, and when Fowles re, um, produced a revised edition in uh, 1977, I think it was, it was just, you know, far fruitier even than the 1966 version. It was all about sort of, it was in some ways kind of sort of sensibating. And it's it, it just, it, 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 to, to me, that I, I, I Fowles to me generally is one of those novelists who you read in adolescence and think has, you know, this is the key to all mysteries, you mm. think. I certainly felt that about Daniel Martin and his book from the next decade. And then you read it again um, when you're slightly old and you think, what is all this? It's uh, and mirrors. Are the 60s pretty liable to that charge generally? That the, You know, when you, when you read experimental, in inverted commas, novels of the 60s, they do feel almost mm, quaint. The anti-novels. Yeah, they seem <laughs> quaint and... They've, I'm sure they do. They are you. They they are of, of. I'm afraid the vast majority of them, to me, are simply of historical interest. Now, you know, they may very well be used to explain the historical processes of the time, but they are also reduced to being of historical interest. Um, I find, and the the, the the terror in some ways, the really uh, the ironic thing about someone like B. S. Johnson, whose trawl was, was was issued in 1966, is that many a critic at the time remarked that he was actually a, a fairly that if you took away all the special effects, he was a thoroughly ordinary realist novelist who was simply trying to position himself according to the prevailing trend which was to the experimental and the left field, uh, and sometimes you're full of scrambled syntax, and, and the sentence is not sort of having to be decoded and sort of running away into the, the margins of the page. And in fact, one of, one of, um, one of uh, his earlier novels actually printed with holes in it, so you could see through to the end of the novel to oh, see what happened in it then as you, were, <laughs> as you were beginning it. Or there's Christy Mallory's own double entry, which is, is, is in double column, you know, like a double entry, like double entry bookkeeping. And, and with the best will in the world, and I enjoy B.S. Johnson's uh, books, and Jonathan Coe wrote a wonderful biography of him that entirely sort of saw his point and his significance, but he can be ever so slightly tiresome. Mm, uh, and so can his idea, that great 60s idea that, um, uh, you know, the only 
way to, to write about anything is to, to abandon any kind of pretense of objectivity and just write from what you know, which was, which was the approach that John Lennon brought to his songwriting, incidentally. It's very interesting to see Lennon McCartney in this context, because Lennon later said that he hated all Paul McCartney's boring songs about boring people doing boring things. He said songs about typists and, and writers, you know, this kind of thing. Whereas he, Lennon, just went from his own experience. You know, I write about me because I know me which to me is one of the great delusions of the 60s, the idea that your own partial consciousness can, can explain everything away. I, I wanted to quote my favourite line in, in, in this piece, which is by Philip Larkin, which mm. uh, I just, uh, I'm going to quick credit for because I just absolutely love this. The whole of English lit at the moment is being written by Anthony Burgess. He reviews all the new books except those written by himself. He must be a kind of Batman of contemporary letters, which does remind us that while all these explosions were going on in experimental fiction, there was still a quite doughty English traditionalism, both in the novel form and in those writing about novels. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Yes, I mean, we, uh, you know, the, the, the novelists that ordinary, in inverted commas, English readers were reading are, um, you know, what, what may, from one level, be regarded as safe, traditional, quiet English novels. But I suppose I have to say that one of the other things that interests me about um, the 60s is that the standard critical views of them are much, to me, much too much... Uh, unduly demar- demarcated, and so you have someone like Pole, who was, who was, I think, in some ways seen as a, you know, a hoary old English traditionalist, and yet to me, The Soldier's Art, the novel he published in 1966, is a very avant-garde book and very playful, ludic, to use that terrible jargon word. And in fact, he's, uh, it's by no means a conventional narrative, and it, um, the, the whole of the beginning of the book is uh, predicated on uh, it's, it's when when its hero goes goes to buy an army greatcoat, and he goes into a, the shop also as a theatrical outfitter, and there's this marvelous extended running gag about the shopman actually thinking that he wants the greatcoat to go on stage on, in, and so he's asking, you know, when is the production on? How long will it run? And, and, and Nick Jenkins, Paul's narrator, thinks that, you know, ah, oh, yes, that old trusty production, The War. How long will it, 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 it? It's kind of seeing it as a kind of aesthetic process. You know, the idea, and this to me is, is something rather kind of, rather highbrow and rather interesting and by no means framed, uh, you know, in, in the, framed in the, uh, with the paraphernalia of your, your ordinary traditional English novel. But I think people sometimes forget this in their, uh, you know, their anxiety to go on about experimentalism and the avant-garde in the 60s. David, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. It's, it's such a great piece. It's the cover piece. We've got a picture uh, of people celebrating in the, in the 60s. Cool. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great, I think, investigation into this. It's a pivotal point, I suppose, David, in the sense that it doesn't necessarily lead us anywhere, but it was a time when people were both looking ahead and back. And mm. therefore, it's an interesting time to oh, take the cultural temperature. I wanting to be led in all kinds of different directions. But I wonder whether the 60s really led very far in lots of ways. I think that's, very a, very, that's a very fair conclusion. David, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks, David. Thank you. Bye. What the piece, I think, does very nicely is it sort of looks at the myth and the the cult of the 60s, which, you know, we're now in 2016. The 60s happened before both of us were alive. And yet we are as familiar with the iconic sort of images of it Mm. as as anybody else. It has seemed to linger, hasn't it? But those, yeah, and those iconic images are always sort of presented and... In terms of leaps forward, it's always about you know um, you know the the football cup was won, F- football arrived home, and you know music revolutions, eruptions in multimedia, the, the exploding plastic inevitable. I know that was in New York, but yeah. that kind of captures it yeah. so so well. And 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 I obviously 
books we know books don't work that way it's not they've not necessarily got the immediacy it takes longer to write a 300 page novel than it does a three minute pop song and so I I really wanted someone to just kind of take the temperature for me and that's what David did so well so we have this this the fact that you were looking backwards and forwards at the same time Uh, one one wasn't stronger than the other necessarily but they you know they came to to bear on this on this and 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 an issue where we're talking about Hausman it's just very striking the lingering effects of war Mm. I mean it's you know, we weren't looking at Hausman, a time, someone who you read in wartime because he might console you. And then in the 60s, a time where, as you say, it should be uh, the, the beginnings of modernity in lots of mm. ways and, and, and experimentalism and looking forward. And yet the great thing that is influencing writers is still this big squatting incident of the war. It's just really, and it all, it all goes together. That's almost all we have time for this week. Thank you, of course, to Thea and to Andrew Motion, Trev Broughton and DJ Taylor. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We will be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on all other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have discussed today, plus Kate Chisholm on the court of George III, Lindsay Gale Gibson on literary women walking the city streets, Sir Alan Moses on the schlock-filled life of celebrity barrister Marshall Hall, Tim Marshall, no relation, on English xenophobia, Rona Cran on Black America, Lara Fiegel on Women at the BBC, Tim Whitmarsh on The Gay Greeks, Toby Lichtig on The BFG, and William Wooten on Craig Rain. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions, and follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, at the TLS. But finally, we've been talking to him earlier here are the sonorous tones of Andrew Motion he's going to be reading a poem from A Shropshire Lad by A.E. Hausman and keep listening because he gives his impressions of it at the end too until next week goodbye this is one of the earlier poems that he wrote for the collection which then eventually became A Shropshire Lad which is number 52 and I've chosen it because I think it illustrates a lot of the things that we've been talking about and that I tried to talk about in my piece. And it is also, it's just worth saying aloud, an extremely beautiful poem, I think. Far in a western Brooklyn that bred me long ago, the poplars stand and tremble by pools I used to know. There, in the windless nighttime, the wanderer, marvelling why, halts on the bridge to hearken how soft the poplars sigh. He hears, no more remembered, in fields where I was known. Here I lie down in London and turn to rest alone. There, by the starlit fences, the wanderer halts and hears my soul that lingers sighing about the glimmering weirs. Among other things, it's a very good example, that, of how the geography does work in ways which are both unspecific general and very specific those glimmering weirs at the end an absolutely brilliant touch mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market even on a budget quality is non-negotiable 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.